good to be with you this morning. And as I said last week when I got up here, I'll say it again this week, it's a privilege to be able to share in God's Word with you all this morning. So as we go to it, let's ask Him for His help, His grace, and His guidance. Let's pray together. Father, we pray now that as we come to your word, that you would instruct us. Father, may we be those who heed the warnings that you have so graciously laid out for us. And God, may we also hold fast to the promises that you give us, the precious and great promises so that through them we could become greater and greater partakers of your divine nature. We pray this for the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Governments typically do nothing to support the sexual fulfillment of the citizens over whom they rule. If anything, governments aim to restrict the citizens' sexual freedom whenever it seems to blossom too colorfully. From priests and other representatives of outmoded religions, nothing else can be expected. This is all very sad. Sexual fulfillment is much more important than economic development or good roads or health insurance. Sexual fulfillment is the one and only reason why it can be worth it to be alive. That's an excerpt from an article in a European website that was written back in the early 2000s. Well, if that was the 2000s, where are we today? If statistics are anything to go by, People today are certainly active in their quest to fulfill themselves outside of the bounds of marriage. Surveys vary pretty wildly on their estimations, but from 25 to 75% of marriage partners in America are estimated to have been unfaithful. One study concluded that 35% of husbands and 30% of wives have been unfaithful in their marriage. Another study found that more than one-third of husbands and more than one-quarter of wives had had extramarital sexual experiences. You know, it says something about where we are today that marriage itself is not so closely associated with sexual activity. But rather, it is singleness that is often taken to be the period of sexual activity and of wild oats sowing. Marriage today is no longer treated as the permanent introduction to sexual activity, but rather it's sort of thought of as the temporary limitation of it. Well, in this kind of setting, 
how are God's people to live? That's the question that we are going to consider this morning as we continue our series in the book of Proverbs. I invite you to turn with me to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5 is where we will be this morning. And in Proverbs chapter 5, we encounter a father's earnest instruction to his son concerning the way of wisdom. Proverbs chapter 5, I'll begin in verse 1 and I'll plan to read the entire chapter at the outset. The father writes, My son, be attentive to my wisdom and incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death and her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others, and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner, and at the end of your life you groan. When your flesh and your body are consumed, and you say, how I hated discipline, my heart despised reproof, I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors, I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a a lovely deer, a, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He is held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for a lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. The situation that this passage lays before us is the valley of temptation. The the valley of decision is where we are when this chapter comes to us. Now, for some of you, That could be a computer screen or alone with your phone. Could be the magazine section of the local bookstore or 
someone who shows interest in you at a place where you frequent. It could be a phone call that you could make or an app that you could download. It could be when you're traveling for business or somewhere where you go in your own mind. Whatever it is, Proverbs 5 addresses you. It addresses you in the valley of temptation. Which path will I take? Will I take the trail of temptation? Or will I remain on the way of wisdom? You know, throughout this chapter, the tug to immorality and adultery is ever-present. It's alluring. The mouth of the temptation's trail is attractive. But there stand witnesses at the head of the trail warning you, pleading with you, telling you, don't go down that road. Stay on the path of wisdom. Keep walking. Don't turn aside. And that brings us to our main idea this morning. Our our main idea from this passage is this. The way to refuse temptation's trail is to remain on the way of wisdom. The the way to refuse temptation's trail is to remain on the way of wisdom. We'll take that in two parts this morning. Just as the passage flows, first part, let's consider temptation's trail. Temptation's trail. As I mentioned, there's witnesses at the head of the trail issuing warnings for us. You don't want to go down that path. Let's let them be our guide as we listen. First, the Father's warning in verses 1 through 6. The Father's warning. He says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. This passage begins with an exhortation to a son to heed his father's wisdom. And he begins with, my son. So we find immediately that this material is especially appropriate for young men who are either looking forward to marriage or perhaps they've just gotten married. And you know, not really only for young men, but also for young women too. Sexual temptation is not limited to just one gender. At the end of the day, this passage is indeed applicable for anyone. Anyone who has experienced temptation in this way. Now, in the culture that this passage was written in, most all men would have been married. And therefore, most all women would have been married. So these words were very directly applicable to them. But still, in a general way, the the words are, are really for anyone who is tempted to sin. The purpose of the Father's warning in the passage we see in verse 2 is to cultivate in His hearers this heart of discretion and wisdom. 
lips that would guard knowledge, he says there. Especially lips that would speak words of wisdom to oneself as they are in the valley of decision. Now we're talking about wisdom, and you might recall from our previous weeks, our, our working definition of wisdom has, has been this, as we've gone through the series, it's, it's the ability to discern what is true, and what is right, and what is lasting. When the test of temptation, the father wants his son to have this wisdom that will withstand the test that will truly discern what is true, that will discern rightly what is right, that will discern the end and what will last. And so the Father says the way to get such wisdom is to listen. Listen to Him. Pay attention. The, the, the Father is pointing to the exit doors of a burning building or the exit rows of an aircraft, and he's helping us to see, here is your way out. Here is the way to life. When verses 3 to 6, the father stands at the head of temptation's trail, and he has his son perform this exercise, this, this exercise of imagining not just the immediate outcome, not just a short distance down the path and the trail, but he urges his son to consider the end of the path if he were to choose this path. Verse 3, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Now, the forbidden woman that the father warns about could, could be a prostitute, but, but likely speaking broadly to, to any woman who the son is not married to, or if he were speaking to a daughter. He's speaking about any man who the daughter would not be married to, and such a person ought to properly be foreign or strange to you sexually. The temptress here is shown as speaking sweet words. They drip honey. Those words might make you feel important. They might make you feel as if somebody finally understands you. Like somebody finally appreciates you. Like somebody finally notices you. You know, many choose to start on temptation's trail because it promises to give you something that you feel like you're missing. Appreciation. Acceptance. Understanding. Companionship. But the Father interjects, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood sharp as a two-edged sword. The, the sweet taste that lasts for a moment, the father is aware that 
the beginning of the trail of temptation can have these attractive appearances, but he flashes forward immediately to the end of the trail. He, he says, no, no, son, at the end, that sweet honey was actually a thin coat around a fish hook. Son, that tasty cake turns to a bottle of vinegar in your mouth. No, 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 son, that cotton candy, it might be sweet for a second, but it dissolves and there's nothing there. You're left with a stomachache. Now, it's always the way of wisdom to draw something out to its logical end. And that's what the Father is doing for the Son here. That's what the Father is doing for us here. It's often what He does in the book of Proverbs. Because we are so tempted to make choices in this life thinking only in terms of the immediate. But but biblical wisdom always considers decisions in, in the light of the end. If you could just see the end, you wouldn't get on the Titanic, would you? No matter how attractive and fun that time was going to be, if you knew the end. And so the Father warns us, verse 5, her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander and she doesn't know it. You know, for, for any hikers out there, you might be familiar with the All Trails app. Well, what, is, what does that do? Well, All Trails, it's kind of this way to preview a trail that you're interested in traveling on. It tells you the length of the trail. It tells you how strenuous the hike might be. It tells you if you can bring your dog or not. Well, the dad is giving his son sort of the all-trails preview to going down Temptation's Trail. And he's saying, son, yeah, there might be some excitement in the beginning, but if you stay on it, you will die. You'll die. Don't go down that trail. The, the father's helping him see the progression of this path. Yeah, honey, but that goes to bitterness, which goes to a slashing sword, which goes to the grave itself. But here's the deal. The trail itself, it, it doesn't come advertising its ruinous effects. The head of the trail instead advertises a fun time. And y'all, given the way that our world thinks about sex, it's as if all the public trail guides out there have conspired together against us not to, to, to not truly disclose what's down this path. It's as if they're all saying, oh, it's one of the best trails in the world. You'll definitely want to go down that path. Yo, isn't that always the nature of sin? Sin, at its very nature, deceives. It's deceptive. It, it comes in nice packaging, sure. I mean, that's why people sin, isn't it? 
They think that they'll have fun. They believe the promise that it holds out. I will satisfy you. You will get that itch scratched. And for a moment, you feel free. Until it returns with greater intensity, more demands, another itch, because you've let it even deeper into your soul and your life. Yo, sin always hides the price tag. It looks nice in the windshield, but it's always ugly in the rear view. It is the nature of wisdom to consider the end of an action. That's the wisdom that you want, I trust. That's the wisdom that the Father holds out to us here. You know, I wonder, do you ever question your own desires? Do do you just simply live life assuming that if you desire something, it must be according to your nature and therefore something that you should have, that it's good for you? You know, particularly if you're here this morning and you may not call yourself a Christian, let me ask you, how is it that you tell when your desires are good or when they are bad? How do you judge that? Is it, is it simply by, by how they feel immediately? Well, if you're in the valley of temptation... We're called to heed the Father's warning here, to to listen to His words of insight. But we don't just have the Father standing at the trailhead as witness. There's a second one who stands warning, ready at the top of the trail. Verses 7 through 14, it's a hypothetical future you a would-be adulterer that the Father enlists to stand and testify against yourself if you were to go down this road. Let's listen. Verse 7. And now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Speaking again of this path, the father says to the son, stay away. The kind of courage that you need when facing temptation is the courage to run. The kind of temptation that Christians need when they face temptation is the courage to run. That is true courage. That is right courage. That is the right thing to do. Courage is not, let me see how close I can get without getting entangled. Wisdom is not, you know, let me linger in the yard of the house for a little while. See if I get invited in. Courage is not, 
let me see if I can walk up and enjoy the porch swing for a little bit. Courage and wisdom is don't even go down that street if you can help it. Well, consider the areas of your life where you may feel most strongly tempted and do what you can to avoid those areas outright. Don't put yourself where sin's gravity is so strong that you're going to easily be sucked in. You know, don't get duped into a contest with sin on its home court. There's no reason to give sin that sort of advantage in your life. You know, it's as if you knew that you were going to face off against a sumo wrestler in two months, and yet you get to pick his diet. Well, what are you going to feed him? You're not going to make sure that he has, you know, 5,000 calorie days, right? You're going to shrink that down as much as you can. Don't give him the advantage, the advantage that he already has. You'll want to starve him, make him weak, stay away. Verse 9, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Well, strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner and at the end of the li- your life you groan. When your flesh and your body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline, my heart despised reproof. I didn't listen to the voice of my teachers. I didn't incline my ear to my instructors. I am now at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Y'all, adultery often ends up involving certain expenses. It is an expensive sin. Wealth can be lost. That which you've earned, spent, taken away. That's what verse 9 and 10 are talking about. Your future self, the would-be adulterer, is standing at the head of the path and saying, it's only a path of regret. Don't do it. He's holding up the lamp at the end of your life, as it were, and going from room to room, having you examine your actions and what's been done at the end of your life as you go to your deathbed. He's he's saying, see what you will think of your sexual sin then. Go to the judgment seat of God. How will you think about your decisions there? Think about your sexual sins and how they would look from heaven. Think about your waywardness and how it would look from hell. Think about the way that you chose to live your life and what good would have come from those decisions. The the young man is presented here in the passage as learning, but learning too late. You know, people 
often say that experience is the best school. Not here. Not here. No, for almost everything that's important in our life, experience is the school of last resorts. Let me ask you, is your philosophy in life, I'll try anything once. And has that served you well? Reflect on the choices you've made even in the last year. Perhaps they were secret choices, private sins. You know, private sins can have still extremely public consequences. That lesson can be learned from the lives of many people around you. From recent occupants of the White House, to even our own church's denomination. Don't wait to be a student until sin is your schoolmaster and your experience is the classroom. Don't wait to learn until sin is your schoolmaster and experience the classroom. Learn from God's Word. Pay attention to it. Incline your ear to it, as the Father says here. This is the first school we should concern ourselves with. Well, these two witnesses stand ready to warn us at the head of the trail of temptation. They point us away from its path. But they do encourage us to keep going. They encourage us to keep walking. They encourage us, there is another way. Continue on the path, but continue on the way of wisdom. Secondly, walk in the way of wisdom. Walk in the way of wisdom. The Father continues, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? And embrace the bosom of an adulteress. In this part of the passage, temptation's trail and the way of wisdom are contrasted. The the father's holding up a picture of wrong love and right love and comparing them. The, The wrong love is enticing but deadly, while the right love is captivating and lovely and right. He asks, should your springs be scattered abroad? Should should you have intimate union with just anyone that you please? No. He's saying here that this unbounded behavior is wrong. The, The scriptures are clear that a promiscuous life is a wasted life. 
You're, you're not raising up your own family. You're not loving your own wife. You're chasing a mirage. And you know it. And you'll never be content doing it. Richard Steele, the Puritan minister, wrote this. All possible care must be used to avoid all occasions and incentives of wandering desires from home. Because he or she that is not content with one will not be content with more. For sin is boundless. And nothing but grace and the grave can limit the desires of the heart. Nothing but grace and the grave can limit the desires of the heart. The the father is saying to his son, those desires that you have, turn them in the right direction. Enjoy marital intimacy with your spouse. Marriage is a wonderful blessing from God. He has made it for your enduring delight. Now look, if you are looking for some fresh anniversary card content, I would not lean too heavily on ancient poetry practices. So my pastoral counsel to you all is not to compare your spouse to animals. Find a different line. But what's communicated here is the loveliness of one's spouse. How they're captivating. You know, we we start most of our mornings at our breakfast table And and earlier this week, when I looked out the window from our breakfast nook, I'm telling you, it was maybe 10 feet from us. On the other side of the window, there was a deer standing there, just nibbling on some of our garden, but that was fine. It was there. And so I kind of do a double take, and then all the kids are there, so I'm trying to tell them to be still, but also to move over to the window. We all made it eventually, and we stood there for a couple of minutes while the deer's just there. And we just enjoyed the sight of God's good creation. We, we were captivated. We enjoyed that moment together. We appreciated the beauty of what God had made. Well, well the Father's saying, enjoy your spouse like that. These desires for intimacy are good, he's saying, but they need to be turned in the right direction. This is all God's idea in the end. It's God's idea that those desires would be filled, fulfilled in your spouse. So wives, you should be your husband's joy. Husbands, you should be your wife's joy. You should be what puts a smile on her face, even when she just thinks about you. Spouses work to have intimacy with one another. 
work to have intimacy that will satisfy you and at the same time satisfy and please your spouse? How can you be more considerate in intimacy with your spouse? Husbands, tell your wife in words about your love for her. Show her in actions. Pray as each year passes that your marriage will be a testimony of the truth of your marriage vows. Take your wife on a date night. Find somewhere to go. Don't wait until you have to talk about something, but just go and enjoy each other's company on a date. Spouses speak encouraging words to one another. Write notes to each other. Husbands, you can buy flowers. I know they will die in a few days. You can still buy them. Husbands, treasure your wife. She is God's good gift to you. Wives, treasure your husbands. He is God's good gift to you. Pray that you would treat your spouse as your best friend, that you would treat them carefully, that you would remember regularly your vows before the Lord, that you would enjoy them, that you would try to have fun with each other, that you would be patient and forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Show respect for one another. Show that you trust and rely upon one another. Your marriage will not look like everybody else's marriage, but your marriage can be good and can be God-honoring. A God-honoring marriage is a beautiful thing. God made people for it. In, In marriage, there is a relational fullness and a richness and a combination of joy and hard work, of fun and of tears, which is unlike anything else in this life. If you don't believe me, just read some of the statistics. Almost all of them would show that marriage is good for health, good for human happiness, good for children, good for society. And by the way, just a little aside here, it's hardly right to say that the state has no interest in marriage laws. Everyone in society is actually helped when there is a clear privileging of heterosexual, exclusive unions in the homes that they normally create. Close the aside. At this church, we work hard to hold marriage in high regard. That's why we would require premarital counseling of anyone who would seek to get married here in this church. That's why we have young married small groups available for members of the church who have been in or who are in their first few years of marriage. That's why we want to have a marriage retreat and workshop every other January and why we give books out on marriage regularly because we want to promote and hold up the centrality of marriage for most 
people's lives. This church holds out to the world a vision of marriage that is and should be compelling according to the Bible. And this isn't ultimately just so that way we can be socially beneficial to society. Ultimately, this is because it is a gospel issue. How did God describe his relationship to Israel in the Old Testament? When he he was most impassioned in his plea for their faithfulness, he gave the analogy of marriage. How does Paul say that Christ's relationship to us as believers is displayed? It's in marriages. As people see a husband and wife loving each other, it is a powerful evangelistic display when we have marriages that are good and godly and Christ is the center of them. Now, there are those of you in this room who are not married. How does this passage speak to you? Well, first, given what this passage is about, if you are single, I have to exhort you to refrain from any sexual conduct. That's number one. You should not have sexual contact with anyone else. That's for when you are married. Single to the Christian means celibate or chaste. That's what the Bible calls it, and it is very clear. But the single and chaste life envisioned in the Scriptures is not one of doleful duty. There is joy itself in it. The the picture that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians 7 is one of mission and undivided devotion. The, The state of singleness, according to Paul, is one that allows for more opportunities to serve the Lord and His people. And in living in that state has clear advantages to build God's kingdom. So I think the question to consider if you're single is this. How can I demonstrate my undivided devotion to the Lord in this season? What opportunities do I have now to serve God's people that I might not have if or once I am married? And give yourself to those. Delight yourself in those. Refuse the trail of temptation by being busy about being devoted to the Lord. Well, there's one last character in this passage who we have not considered. We've thought through the witnesses that would warn us against the trail of temptation. We've considered this way of wisdom and faithfulness to one's spouse. But finally, there is one who sees all our paths. There is one who sees our every step, who knows our every way, who sees our very hearts. 
who knows our every thought. Verse 21, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. The father says to the son, one last time, listen to me. Do not believe the lie that no one will know if you go down that trail. Don't believe it. There is one who knows all. There will always be one who knows. The Lord of heaven and earth, He knows. He sees. He made you for Himself. He is jealous over your heart. You were made to walk with Him. Do not give yourself to another. And here is the ultimate, the overarching truth of this passage. Faithfulness to God is the primary concern of this passage. Faithfulness to God is the primary way that this passage exhorts us. How will the son stay away from the trail of temptation? Well, yes, if he's married, he is to be faithful to his spouse, but his faithfulness to the Lord first is shown in his faithfulness to his spouse. Devotion to the Lord is, is the root Devotion to a spouse, if you have one, is, is the fruit. And this is where, y'all, we are all silenced in many regards. Because it's clear. Just as Israel was described as spiritual adulterers in the Old Testament for being unfaithful to the Lord, we are called in the book of James an adulterous people. Why? Well, because our hearts at times are not entirely faithful and true to the Lord, are they? We've gone after other lovers. God has made us for Himself to adore Him and to love and to worship Him, but there are times where we don't want Him. We just want His stuff. We don't want God. We just want everything else that He's made. And that's what the Bible calls idolatry. Spiritual adultery. We have not been faithful to our one true love. We ran from Him. We ran after other Lovers, So we need somebody. We need somebody to come and to take us back. We need somebody to come and, and to woo our hearts, to turn our hearts to the Lord, to win our hearts to Him, to, to lavish us with love until we can't resist Him any longer. And that's what Christ came to do. 
That is what Christ came to do. He came from heaven in pursuit of his bride. He was the faithful spouse through and through. When he was tempted, he remained faithful. When when he was enticed and there were efforts made to, to lure him away from pursuing his bride, the church, he doubled down. He stayed on the road. We remained the apple of his eye even unto his death. He chose the cross for you and for me. He chose the cross for us. He did not die simply to show that he cared, but he died to purchase us, to purchase us from the sin that reigned over us, to purchase us from the evil one who had enticed us and lured us away. He died to purchase us, to make us his forevermore. Not because we were lovely, but because he is loving. Not because we deserved it, we were undeserving. And so now he takes us as his own. Though we were not once lovely, he, by his power, by his spirit, makes us all together lovely. And on that last day, we will be ready, waiting for him, clothed in righteousness divine, sin gone, faithfulness restored, that which is true and good and beautiful, always what we desire. And while we wait, we hope, we fight, and we walk on the way of wisdom, putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh, listening to the witnesses of temptation's trail and her destruction, and we walk, and we go the path of wisdom, because we know That in truth, the great groom, Christ himself, is ready to receive us at the end. If you'd pray with me. Father, we pray now that you would strengthen us. Enlarge our hearts to walk on the way of wisdom that Christ would captivate us, that we would be captivated by the right kind of love and not allured by temptation's promises and its false desires. God, help us. Help us to be faithful to you because you have been nothing but faithful to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.